Well, we come this morning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We know we're well past the halfway point in Acts. It has 28 chapters. Let's hear what happened when they came to Thessalonica. Acts 17, starting at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled this crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, please open our hearts to understand your word. Give us the nobility of the Bereans, not the ignobility of the Thessalonians. Help us to nobly listen and to nobly heed what we hear. We pray, Father, that you would not let Satan's work stop your kingdom in our church, in our city, or anywhere in our world. And especially, Father, we ask that the word would take root in each heart here. Help me to speak boldly and powerfully as I ought to speak. Give us all the nobility to listen well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've talked a lot about the progress of the kingdom of God. That converts are made everywhere Paul goes. That Satan's kingdom is retreating. His citizens are being depleted as they're rescued and brought into God's kingdom. And that's true, but this chapter shows us that Satan's opposition can be effective, not in stopping the kingdom of God, not in reversing its progress. Satan can't recapture people that Jesus has saved, but Satan can effectively slow down the kingdom. 
he can cause the rate of growth, the number of new converts to drop to just a tiny trickle. And that's what he successfully does in Thessalonica. Satan's kingdom can and does fight back. And it causes damage in the medium term. But in the long term, God's kingdom prevails. That's what we'll see here in Acts 17. First thing we see, kingdom work, then kingdom enemies, and then kingdom setback at the end of the section. We begin with kingdom work as Paul travels on with his team. They leave Philippi, go through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and come to Thessalonica. It's a journey of about 100 miles, primarily along the eastern coast of Greece, there on the Aegean Sea. So they travel through these two cities. They come to Thessalonica, and there they enter the synagogue once again. Paul, as his custom was, went into them. So as we've seen, Paul pretty much always heads straight for the synagogue if there is one available. And in this synagogue, Luke tells us that he did four different things to get the word of God across to them. The first thing he did was to discuss the word. New King James calls it reasoned with them from the scriptures. Other translations are addressed them or interacted with them, argued with them. What is this? Well, Paul is having a two-way conversation with the Jewish people that he finds in the local synagogue. He doesn't just tell them what he thinks. He takes questions. He listens to their views, and they dialogue about the scriptures. That's what we try to do in Sunday school. That's kind of the point of our Sunday school class, is to approach the Word of God in this way, where the Thessalonian Jews could ask Paul anything they wanted to know, about his teaching, or about the Bible more generally. And Paul was happy to discuss it with them. But the other thing he did, or he did two additional things. The second thing was to explain, says the New King James, or open, is a more literal rendering of the word. Paul opened the scriptures. Now that literally, of course, means that he took the book and opened it up. But it's also used figuratively. Luke uses it in Luke 24 to say that Jesus opened the apostles' minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their eyes so that they would recognize him on that road to Emmaus, and he opened their minds so they would understand it. In the same way, to open the scripture means to explain what it's really saying. We all are familiar with the reality that some books, even if you open them up and start reading, remain closed books as far as understanding what in the world they're talking about. Paul opens the scriptures. That is, he says, here is what it says. Here is the point, and of course the point is that Jesus is the Messiah, which we'll talk about in just a second. This is the major goal of this sermon in our worship, to open the scriptures, to explain what they're really talking about. The third thing Paul does is to prove or to demonstrate that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Paul isn't just talking about scripture with no purpose. 
He has a thesis. He has a point he's trying to get across, a point that he is supporting with evidence, and that point is this. God's anointed had to die. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to rise from the dead. Why did Paul try to prove that point? Because that was a point on which he and his Jewish countrymen disagreed. Paul did not come and try to prove to them that God had really spoken to Moses. They already believed that. Paul did not come to them and try to prove to them that kosher has more health benefits than non-kosher. They already agreed with that. Paul came to them and tried to prove to them that the Messiah was not solely a victorious, kingly individual. The Messiah is somebody who will go through rejection, pain, suffering, and death. As we know from the Gospels and even from the beginning of Acts, Jesus' own disciples, like the other Jews of their time, were looking for a victorious Messiah. A political savior who would throw off the Romans and lead Israel in a time of renewed national glory. And Paul's point was to say, stop looking for that. The one, the coming one that's promised in the pages of our Bible, what we call the Old Testament, they simply called the Bible, that was all of the Bible that they had. The one who's promised in our Bible has to suffer. So Paul certainly could have proved that from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men. We hid our faces from him. Paul could have proved it from Genesis 3.15. The serpent will crush the promised one's heel. Paul could have proved it from the careers of Moses and David, who suffered greatly in their lives. But regardless of where he went in the Bible, Paul's goal was to get across the message that the Messiah had to suffer. And then his major assertion, once he had proven that, was, in so many words, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah. So he was saying, if we look at the text of our Bibles, fellow countrymen, we see a suffering Messiah. Now, I want to tell you about this man named Jesus of Nazareth, who was killed about 15 years ago in the province of Palestine by the Roman authorities and rose again from the dead. He's that one. He's the Messiah that our Bible prophesies. That was Paul's method. So he discussed scripture, right? He established with them first that he knew the Bible better than they did. He showed his credibility. Then he opened it and explained to them, here's what it's really saying. Then he said, here's the point. It's about a suffering Messiah. Now let's get it out of the text and into the real world. In the real world, there's a man whose name was Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again right here in the Roman Empire only about 15 years ago. So if I said to you, There was a man in Connecticut in 2007 
and the words of the Bible apply directly to what he experienced. That's the message that Paul is trying to get across. And you can see why his countrymen were resistant, just as we would be very resistant to a message about a man in Connecticut in 2007. The exalted, majestic, glorious things I read about God Almighty in my Bible don't seem to fit with the prosaic, pedestrian, everyday reality of somebody who lived during my lifetime in the same political entity in which I live and had a life about like mine. Right? To the Jews of Thessalonica, Bible meant exotic. And when Paul said, I am preaching to you somebody not exotic, but somebody who looked a lot like you and me, and who lived not too far away and not too long ago, they said, that doesn't sound like Bible. Bible is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Bible is once upon a time. Bible is distant in time and space. So Paul had his work cut out for him as he discussed, opened, proved, and asserted, no, the Messiah actually was a Jewish guy like you and me who lived about 15 years ago. The Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, appears 38 times in the Old Testament. And it's not an infrequent concept. It comes up a lot most often in reference to a single individual. The anointed priest, for example, that's its first occurrence, Leviticus 4.3. The anointed priest shall deal with the offering in such and such a way. The word Mashiach also refers frequently to King David and to his descendants, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. So Paul is saying everything that our Bible says about the Messiah when it uses that name 38 times is fulfilled in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Everything that we were looking for from our anointed priests, everything we were looking for from the Lord's anointed king, everything we were looking for from anointed prophets, Jesus summed it all up. That's the message that he preached. And some believed. Some said, I see it. Right? Their minds were opened as the scriptures were opened and they could see that what Paul was saying was the truth. That the Lord's anointed really was this man, Jesus. Some of them were persuaded some of the Jews, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks. Lots of non-Jewish people who came to the synagogue because they liked to hear the Bible, they believed, and quite a few of the prominent women. Back in the days when newspapers published society pages, you saw pictures of the elite of the city gathering at such and such event. The people who would be in those photographs were the ones who believed Paul. And God joined them to the missionaries. Again, we see team ministry. Don't neglect that. Team ministry happens throughout Acts. 
There's only one place in all of Acts, as I understand it, where we don't have team ministry. That's later in this chapter where Paul had to flee from Berea and he goes to Athens alone because his team wasn't able to flee with him. Otherwise, as we saw, it's Peter and John, it's Paul and Barnabas, it's Paul and Silas. Here's Paul and Silas. And those who are converted are joined to them. Again, what is Luke telling us? There's no salvation apart from being part of the church. If you believe in Jesus, you are joined to the body of Christ. You don't just believe and then float off on your own. You believe and God joins you to the missionaries. They're joined by becoming part of the same group, the group known as Christians. Well, Luke then describes the reaction of the Jewish people in this category that doesn't appear very much in Scripture, the category of nobility. He doesn't use the word until verse 11, where he says the Berean Jews were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. The word is literally well-born, eugenes. The well-born, the noble people in Berea listen to the word of God. And he's contrasting that with the ignoble Thessalonians. Ignoble Thessalonians riot against the word of God. The noble Bereans listen to the word of God. Now, we're a little skeptical of this word noble. Uh, First, as Christians, and second, as Americans. Or maybe you could even flip that around. If we go over the context, as Americans... We hold to this. The Constitution of the United States, Article 1, Section 9. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Now, this emoluments clause made a big splash in the last few years, but not because any American politician was seeking a title of nobility. Plenty of American politicians have sought foreign emoluments. But I've never heard of an American politician who thought that he could go to the queen and become sir so-and-so and that that would give him a better chance in his house race. We Americans are suspicious of the very concept of nobility. We outright ban our government from awarding anybody a title of nobility. And anyone who has any political influence in the United States has to get an act of Congress, literally, that's what it says, before they're allowed to get a title of nobility from any foreign potentate. Now, why is that? Our society, from the beginning, our republic, has attempted to repudiate the idea of noble versus ignoble, well-born versus base-born, upper class versus lower class. We see that as incompatible with a republic where anybody can rise to be president. And there are no hereditary titles of any kind or shape. So as Christian or as Americans, we're suspicious of this category of nobility. Also, 
if you can think of one verse in the Bible that describes nobility, what verse are you going to think of? The word actually appears in four verses in the Bible. First time is in Job, Job 1.3. That man was the most noble of all the men of the East. The word appears twice in Luke. Uh, Luke 19, the parable of the minas. The nobleman, as Jesus describes him, gives out the minas to his people, his servants, and then departs into a far country and tells them to trade, do business till he comes back. And when he comes back, one is traded well and made ten minas, another is traded fairly well and made five minas, and the third one hit his mina in the ground. So we have a nobleman there in Jesus' parable, and of course we also have the word here in Acts 17, the noble Bereans. But overshadowing all three of those by about 10 miles is Paul's usage in 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. And just like so many of the other things in 1 Corinthians, the church has latched on to that and kind of gotten this idea that yeah, yeah. Church is for middle class and lower class people like ourselves. The elites, the nobility, they're godless wastrels, right? James, what is it, James 5. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you, who drag you into court, who blaspheme the noble name by which you're called? And we say, yeah, James, yeah, Paul. Soak the rich, stick it to the rich. Those who claim to be noble in their birth are lying. They're not noble. They're not really well-born. Their character stinks. But Luke goes ahead anyway and deploys this category of nobility to describe the Bereans and therefore its, its opposite to describe the Thessalonians. How do we know that the Thessalonians are ignoble? Well, look at who they hire. Verse 5. The Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of what the New King James calls the evil men from the marketplace. What the King James calls, beautifully, lewd fellows of the baser sort. And what other translations describe as loiterers in the marketplace or as wicked people, sons of Belial, things along this line. The word literally means marketplace loiterers. The kind of people who are at the bottom of the social hierarchy, who are employed as day labor only, and who just hang out in the marketplace almost with a will work for food sign. The comparable category in our society would be the unemployed homeless. These are the kind of people, they're not nobility, they're not the upper crust, they're not the upper echelon in any sense, they're not even the middle echelon, they are the bottom echelon. And it's these people that the Thessalonian Jews hire to start a riot. They took some of the marketplace loiterers and gathered a mob. Now what is Luke doing by deploying this category of ignoble versus noble? 
Well, he's redefining nobility and he's saying it's not about who your mommy and daddy were. It's not how far back you can trace your lineage and whether king so-and-so gave your family noble status 800 years ago. Not the point. Nobility, says Luke, is defined by how you respond to the word of God. The Bereans are noble because they listen to the word. The Thessalonians are ignoble because they riot against the word. Nobility is defined by your attitude toward the word of God, not by the accident of your birth. Jesus, of course, is born in ignoble circumstances. He's not well born by the world's standards. Yes, he's in a kingly line, He's also born in a stable. Luke tells us that the ignobility of those who resist and reject the word of God, namely the Thessalonian Jews, is matched by the ignobility of those they recruit to form a mob. The rioters are low class. The rioters are ignoble. The rioters are base-born. And so are the people who hire them, even if they happen to be socially prominent, wealthy, and what we would call upper class. They form a mob, set the city in an uproar, try to lynch the missionaries, attack the house of Jason. What does scripture say about mobs? Mobs are evil. Don't become part of a mob. Exodus 23, you must not follow a crowd in doing evil. In a lawsuit, you must not offer testimony that agrees with a crowd so as to pervert justice. Don't hop on the bandwagon of the mob. The mob has been a powerful social force for millennia. It was here in Thessalonica. It was in Rome at that same time. We've seen plenty of mob action in the last few years in our own country and in other places around the world. If a mob is doing it, don't join in. But the rioters, the mob, they drag Jason out of his house. Who is Jason? Well, he's Paul's landlord. That's part of what's low class about the mob. Paul's landlord is not responsible for what Paul is doing. The mob doesn't know that. Or if they do know that, they don't care. The fact that Paul is not there, that the one who actually is causing what they consider to be the problem, that doesn't bother bother them. They're looking for any target, and Jason is a target of opportunity, and so they attack his house and drag Jason and some other Christians before the politarchs, the rulers of the city. Then the ignoble rioters present ignoble charges. Three charges. The charge of politically destabilizing the empire, the charge of proclaiming another king, and the charge that Jason has given them shelter. Well, the politarchs ignore the charge that Jason has given them shelter. That's not really a problem. But 
what are these charges? These who have turned the world upside down. First charge. They have politically destabilized the empire. The Greek word is more literally upset. They've upset the whole world. They've destabilized the whole world. And now they're here. Why are we in Thessalonica afflicted with these people? Right? What's the charge? The charge is that they've caused riots. That they've disturbed the peace and order of the Roman world. Now that's a pretty rich charge coming from rioters. But the politarchs appear to listen to it. Right? What are the rioters claiming? We rioters are not the cause of the riot. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are the cause of the riot. Never mind that they're not even here. We're only trying to set things right. Is it the protesters or the injustice they're protesting? Which is the problem? Well, there isn't a hard and fast rule. Sometimes real injustices cause problems. But oftentimes, a mob is a bigger problem than whatever injustice it's purportedly correcting. They charge that Paul and Silas have upset the empire and that, in fact, they are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar by proclaiming another king, a guy named Jesus. Now, once again, we see the lower class nature of this mob. Paul had explained for three weeks the nature of the rule of Christ, that he is the Messiah of Israel, that he is a religious figure, that he is not a threat to Caesar in a way that some other earthly monarch, you know, in a way that the king of the Persians is a threat to Caesar. Jesus is a king of a totally different order. Does the mob care about that? No. Does the fact that Jesus is not challenging Caesar for the throne mean anything to them? No. They're not interested in the details. They're interested in driving out Paul and Silas. The ignoble anti-intellectualism is clear. And of course, the backers of the mob are tarred with that same brush by Luke. They're also ignoble and anti-intellectual. They don't care what Paul was actually saying. They just want him gone. Well, the rulers of the city and the crowd were very troubled. Why? Because they're ignobly credulous. The mob is on their doorstep yelling things, and the fools who run the city believe it. Oh, well, the mob says it. Must be true. Rather than saying, it's a mob. The level of credibility it deserves is, well, somewhere deep underground, right? It's hidden. There's no reason to believe this mob just because they're out in the streets yelling charges about Paul and his team. So the politarchs believe it and they get really worried. Oh, no, we're harboring people who would dethrone Caesar? That's a black mark on our city. This is bad. We need to get rid of these terrorists. So <laughs> they, they come up with a legal way out of this and they say, 
Jason, will you give bail that they won't do it again? They set bail for the criminals who aren't even there. But they say, well, you're their landlord. Why don't you give bail that you'll keep them on good behavior? So Jason does. He sees a way out and he just forks over the cash. And then they hurry away, Paul and Silas, by night. They're not welcome in Berea anymore. So Luke just moves on and describes the nobility of the Bereans, which we'll talk about next week. But Paul, as we read a few minutes ago in 1 Thessalonians, specifically ascribes this to Satan. So if you go to 1 Thessalonians, this is really fascinating. As we saw, 1 Thessalonians 2, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Paul did not want to leave. Paul wanted to be there with the Thessalonian converts. And Satan stopped him. What do we learn? Satan can fight back against the kingdom of God. And the way he fights back against the kingdom of God is not by taking Christians and turning them into non-Christians. I mean, there is apostasy. There are people who look like Christians that revert to their original master, Satan. But Satan's main method of approach is not to take Christians and turn them into non-Christians. It's to stop his subjects from ever becoming Christians in the first place. How does he do that? Well, by driving away anybody who would proclaim the word of God. By making it look like it's illegal to believe in Jesus. That's what Satan does. And he successfully put a stop to missionary work in Thessalonica. Persecution can slow the rate of conversions to a trickle, and that's why the devil uses it. It worked in Thessalonica. So there was kingdom progress, but there were also ignoble enemies of the word of God, and they prevailed in the medium term. They kicked out Paul and Silas, who had to rush out by night. God's kingdom won't lose in the end. But in the medium term, Satan can land some pretty tough blows. So how do we conquer Satan? We have to be noble and listen to the word of God. Act like you're well-born. How do you do that? By paying attention to what's here. That's what the Bereans did. That's what the Thessalonians should have done rather than starting a mob, rather than rioting. So listening to the word will conquer Satan. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be noble. We're not earls and dukes and counts in the world's estimation. But if we listen to your word and keep it, we are truly noble. Like Job, like the nobleman who distributed the minas. Father, we know that not many noble according to the flesh are called. Help us to be those who are called by your spirit and who are truly well-born and that we are born again from above. Thank you for your word. Give us the nobility to hear it 
we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.